This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. We had uh, last talked about Anselm and some of his basic writings. What I want to do tonight is look at two of the major contributions that Anselm made theologically. And we mentioned earlier in the monologium that he had talked about a rational demonstration of the Trinity, his attempt at that. And the goal of the proslogium is to prove the existence of God. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight with his, his argument and his approach to uh, the, the ontological argument for the existence of God. This is called the ontological proof. Ontological proof. Do I? Yeah, I have a spell that for you, in case you don't know how to spell. Uh, Anselm, remember, has this motto of faith-seeking understanding. It's not enough for him to simply trust the Lord that God exists, but there's something in Anselm that pushes him, a belief that it can be rationally demonstrated, that it can be rationally understood and demonstrated, that is, the ontological proof. He felt that he could come up with an argument. Uh, Anselm, at the time he was going through all of this, uh, seemed to be very obsessed with this argument. He, he'd sort of, you know, one of those guys who... who, who grabs hold of something and he just can't let go of it. The story goes that he would stay up late at night thinking through, and even at times when he was supposed to be praying uh, in the middle of the night, uh, he, could, he could not escape uh, this argument, trying to figure out some way to rationally demonstrate the existence of God. He was haunted by it. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. And then one night, suddenly, the argument in its fullness flashed across his mind. And he was astonished and ran back to his little cubicle. Monks had little rooms back then. And he wrote the thing down, the complete ontological argument. It goes like this. I'm going to give you the, the first, a, a little more comprehensive explanation. Then I'll give you the brief one, the one that you probably really want to make sure you know. The argument begins like this. And I think most of you probably have some acquaintance with the argument, but I'll rehearse it for you. The mind, he says, can conceive of something. That's something of which nothing greater can be conceived. So he can conceive of a perfect being, perfection. That's the first step. The mind can conceive of something of which nothing greater can be conceived. The second point. This greatest something 
cannot simply exist only in the mind, but it must exist in reality. What this greatest something must exist not merely in the mind, but also in reality. His thinking on the second point is that if something can merely merely exist in the mind, it, it, it's still greater if it actually exists. And so there's, that's the greatest possible thing. And you'll see this little phrase that comes up. Perfection requires existence. If it's going to be the, the ultimate, the greatest thing that can be conceived of, then it's not, as gr- it's not great if it's only in your mind. It's only an idea. But if it's real, it's even greater. So perfection requires existence. Therefore, this greatest something of which nothing greater can be conceived, which really must be God. He thinks he's done it. He has proven rationally the existence of God. He concludes his argument citing Psalm 14.1, where it says, The fool in his heart has said there is no God. 14.1 14.1 It should be, yeah, it should be 14. I, I double-checked before I came in. It's 14.1 Reason, he says, therefore requires belief in God. And it's a fool. It's someone who will not employ their reason properly who concludes there is no God. He says they truly are foolish. And what he means by that is they're irrational. Because logically, the existence of God can be proven, he says. Let me give you the short version. And I think, uh, just to make sure you're really clear on this. Premise one, God is the perfect being. Or the highest conceivable being. God is the perfect being. Premise two, Perfection requires existence. Conclusion, therefore God exists. God is the perfect being, or you could say the highest of all conceivable beings. Secondly, perfection requires existence. Everything hinges on that second one. And therefore, God exists. That, in a nutshell, is the ontological argument. Now, virtually every major philosopher, theologian down through the ages uh, have realized that at least in the Anselmic formulation, it is flawed. Uh, The flaw centers on this very simple fact that Anselm assumes the truth of what he is trying to prove. Assumes the truth of what he is trying to prove. give you an example of this. As he begins to unfold the ontological argument, listen, this is how you, 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 you begin the ontological argument. Enter into the inner chamber of the mind. Shut out all things except God. And whatever will aid you in seeking Him. 
So he's, he's begun with the existence of God. And then he proceeds to develop this ontological argument. So most scholars have recognized, at least in the formulation of Anselm, that there, have, that there, that there were flaws in it. Now, it's, it's also very obvious that philosophers down through the ages, people like Descartes in particular, uh, have, have been terribly fascinated with the ontological argument with some modifications. Um, other folks have taken some hints from Anselm and then from Descartes. Uh, I'll mention someone that most of you don't know is Edmund Husserl, a mathematician who uh, developed, Bob knows who I'm talking about, who uh, employed some of these kinds of ideas, a purely mental kind of uh, construct. Uh, but anyway, it has exercised some fascination. But I think, at least in its Anselmic formulation, I think it's obvious that it is not, in and of itself, absolutely compelling. Uh, can you want to tell me what it is? Okay, I think I said that actually. Yeah, it did, didn't I? I mean, I talked about the difference between uh, a purely mental construct. That is some. That's less. That's not per perfect because there's a. If there's another, the, the reality really existing is is a greater. It's a higher level of perfection. So I, I think I did sort of allude to that. At least I meant to. Anyway. I do have to move on, so let's press on. Anselm attacked. Uh, it wasn't like everybody in the Middle Ages said, Anselm, you've done it. There were lots of folks who felt there were problems with it. And one was a man named uh, Gaunilo. He wrote his book, Libra Pro Incipiente. Uh, G-A-U... N-I-L-O. I failed penmanship. Uh, I, I love the name of his book. It's called The Case for the Fool. And uh, what he is saying there is he is, in his title, pointing back to Psalm 14. And he is basically saying with his title the case for the fool, or the book for the fool, is that Anselm's argument was not adequate to defeat the fool who says there is no God. In other words, it doesn't persuade the irrational fool of Psalm 14. It fails, he says. And Gaunilo argues that if you follow the same sort of reasoning that Anselm does, you could just as well prove the existence of Atlantis. And everybody knows Atlantis does not exist. So, Gaunilo says, following the same basic procedure, you can prove the existence of something that in fact doesn't exist. And therefore, the argument itself utterly fails, according to his detractor. Now, I, I always want to say this. 
when I look at some of these these arguments for God's existence, uh, whatever, whatever one it is, uh, I think it's fair to say that the argument fails logically. But that is not the same thing as saying that the ontological argument or the cosmological argument or any of the others don't have value. Okay? To say that it fails logically is not quite the same thing as saying that it has no value. Uh, particularly for Christians, uh, I think some of these arguments uh, may have value in that they may provide confirmation. Uh, I think, for example, the teleological argument in particular is one uh, says, you know, there's design in the universe and that ought to somehow suggest to us. I think for a Christian, there is some validity in that sense, for, for that argument. Uh, it, it, it confirms what, what the Bible teaches us. But by itself, for a non-Christian, I'm not sure it's compelling. Uh, but it has value, and I think it has value in particular for Christians. Uh, I like what Bob Inc. says, and Bob Inc. was no friend, uh, particularly, of the uh, proofs. He says that these proofs are signs and testimonies of God for Christians. Uh, that, but that by and large, when you try to use them and in a logical way with a non-Christian, they're not by themselves going to persuade an unbeliever uh, logically that God exists. And I, I, I don't know if I need to argue with you about that or not. I'm not going to. Cur Deus Homo. I was so surprised my first semester here. What's that? That's right. I like that. My first semester, you know, I came in and I was just going to go through the doctrine of God and just I thought nobody has any real interest in these these proofs for God's existence. So I was rattling them off pretty quick, and all of a sudden, everybody's raising their hand. Oh, you know, really a big deal. And I was, I was caught off guard. I didn't realize I'd walked into a place where uh, it's a pretty serious issue for some folk. Um, be that as it may. Cur Deus Homo. The other major contribution of Anselm has to do with his doctrine of the atonement. Anselm unfolds a new chapter in the history of doctrine with his view of the atonement. A new chapter in the history of doctrine. Incidentally, somebody had asked me when you read Curdeus Homo who Basso was. Uh, the person with whom uh, Anselm was dialoguing. I found out. Basso was a student of Anselm's when he was at the monastery. of. So he took this, this name of a student and put him into his book. Who knows? You might be famous someday if I write a, a dialogue. I don't publish those. That would be from the time of origin, a prevailing theory of the atonement was this, that Christ's death on the cross was a ransom paid. Christ's death on the cross was a ransom paid to the devil. 
It was a way of sort of buying off the claim that Satan had on mankind because Satan had fallen and now Satan, uh, Adam had fallen and now belonged to Adam and his progeny belonged to the kingdom of Satan. And so this was a ransom paid to buy back humanity. That was the sort of prevailing idea from the early church. Anselm comes along, comes up with a very different idea. Again, he is still trying to do the same thing. Faith seeking understanding. He believes that Christ came and died for the sins, covered the sins, atoned for the sins of His people. That's no, there's no question. But now what he's trying to do is he's trying to rationally demonstrate why God became man. Rationally, compellingly demonstrate why there was an incarnation. Why God became man. A number of points to be made here. Subpoint one. This is how he rationally argues for, rationally explains the fall. First, or explain why God became man. First, in the fall, man sinned and therefore dishonored God. He offended the honor of God. One of the things you will notice throughout this argumentation is that it draws very much on feudal culture. Uh, I'll, make, I'll, I'll elaborate on that as we go along. But there's very much, uh, many of the, the feudal ideas of culture, the idea of honor and dishonor and how to uh, restore honor, all of that is very much involved in the Anselmian view of the atonement. So the first sub-point is that in the fall, because man sinned, he dishonored God. He offended the good honor of the king. Secondly, God's justice demands that compensation or satisfaction be rendered for the injured honor. Is it starting to sound more futile to you? God's justice demands satisfaction or some sort of compensation for injury to His honor. And forgiveness cannot be granted to the underling until that honor cannot be forgiven. The underling, the person who has rendered the dishonor, cannot be forgiven until satisfaction or compensation has been rendered. Subpoint B. This compensation must take either the form, uh, the form either of punishment of the sinner, punishment, or something equivalent. This compensation must take the form of or some equivalent form of compensation. Now, I'm going to elaborate on this third point a little bit. Anselm asked himself, 
If these are the rules of the game, compensation must be made for dishonoring someone. He asks himself, can man compensate God for the dishonor man has rendered God? Can man in and of himself? Anselm, a strong Augustinian, a strong sense of original sin, says no. Man himself cannot compensate God for He elaborates and says, even if, even if a person could live a perfect life, that would be nothing more than what man, what every person owes God. That is his duty. So even if he could live a perfect life, it still would not compensate for the dishonor because that is something that is owed to God. Subpoint four. Therefore, since man cannot compensate God, there has to be another way, an equivalent way of compensation. And this leads, by way of explanation, to the conclusion that only God Himself can make satisfaction for man's dishonoring of God. God Himself but he's also mindful, Anselm is, that man ought to be the one. God does it, but man ought to be the one to do it. And so, he concludes this fourth point by concluding that satisfaction must be made by the God-man. There's got to be someone... Subpoint five. Now, to make satisfaction, the God man must compensate God by giving something back which is not obligated. Let me say that again. To make satisfaction, the God man must compensate God by giving something back to God which is not obligated. I'll say that again. The God-man, if he's going to compensate the dishonored God, it's got to be something more than he's, than, he, than he's obligated to do. It's got to go beyond mere duty, beyond mere obligation. He says, Jesus, uh, even if Jesus lived, and he did live a perfect life, that is still what is required in his humanity. Jesus is required to live a good life, a perfect life. But, says Anselm, Christ's death is a different matter. That goes above and beyond the obligations. You see, death, says Anselm, is punishment for those who have sinned. Right? Death is, a, is, is punishment for sin. Then he says, but Christ was sinless. And so His death is above and beyond the obligation that He owes. Because He died and was sinless. 
Therefore, through this above and beyond death of Christ, He acquired infinite merit. Infinite merit. And this infinite merit accomplished by Christ more than compensated for the injured honor of God. This infinitely, this infinite merit accomplished by Christ's death more than compensates for the injured honor of God. Finally, sixth point. The justice of God cannot permit the merit of Christ's death to go unrewarded. God's justice must reward this infinite meritorious work of Christ. Christ's justice, God's justice, cannot permit the merit of Christ's death to go unrewarded. Justice demands that this meritorious work, this above and beyond kind of work, must be rewarded. And what is the reward that Jesus seeks? It is the deliverance of man from the penalty he deserved, the punishment he deserved. The reward that Jesus names is the deliverance of man from the penalty he deserved for his sin. It's kind of a, an ornate, elaborate sort of argumentation, but it is one in which God's justice and God's mercy are preserved. Uh, Anselm is trying to do both of those things at the same time. Preserve justice and mercy at the same time. It's, it's, it's very ingenious, I think. David? It's a, it is a rational... Yes, I mean, he's... Well, he, he, is, he is trying. I, th I think two things I would say. One is he is trying to devise this argument on a purely rational basis. Okay? He believes it already. He's now trying to pro provide rational proof. It's faith-seeking understanding. Rational demonstration. The second thing is I think that he has borrowed categories from feudal culture to do this. So he has borrowed some things. I mean, in feudal culture, for example, uh, there are laws. And the penalties for those laws were proportionate to the rank of the person injured. Example, if I'm a peasant and you injure me, if you do dishonor to me, there's going to be one penalty for that, okay, according to the feudal laws. But if I am of nobility and you do the exact same thing to me, then the penalty is greater by virtue of my higher rank. 
That is a very futile kind of idea. And Anselm employs that. I'm not saying it's a wrong idea, in, uh, because I think there is a qualitative uh, difference in God's rank, if you will. So, throughout all of this, this way in which mercy and justice are both preserved, God is compensated, His honor is restored. And this is possible only through the God-man. So he thinks he has uh, developed a, a, a comprehensive, rational argumentation. Yes, it means why the God-man. Incarnation. Uh, that's just to remind... It's, it's dealing with the incarnation. Why God became man. Uh, so broadly, it has to do with the incarnation, more specifically with the atonement. It's a general atonement. You don't find... You know, the, the only person I can think of who believed in a definite atonement was in the ninth century... Uh, Gottschalk, the uh, the real rigid Augustinian. By and large, uh, most would have had this general kind of idea of an atonement. Good question. Uh, the other one thing that's interesting about this is uh, some have criticized Anselm because he talks about the honor of God rather than the holiness of God. Now, the two are somewhat related uh, but some have felt that he doesn't do quite enough uh, justice to the holiness of God in all of this. But at least I think he's moving in that kind of direction, uh, dealing with the same kinds of, of issues that, that, that uh, need to be addressed when you talk about the atonement. Mike? No, no, no. This is, a, this is Anselm's theory of the atonement. Okay, are you clear on that? Yeah, yeah this is... Uh, he, he has developed something to replace the old ransom theory of the atonement. He didn't like the idea that God was buying off Satan. And that's what the cross was all about. Uh, he wants something a little more complicated. Uh, and a little more biblical, I think, to be sure. Okay. We've moved through Anselm. I want to do that pretty quickly and get to Aquinas. Dates 1225 to 1274. Died a young man. I've already said that Anselm was a sort of person who uh, really embodied in his own intellectual activity this credo of, I believe in order to understand, or faith-seeking understanding. And one will find that in Aquinas as well, uh, very much the same kind of thinking. Uh, very much concerned to uh, rationally demonstrate doctrines. Although Aquinas is probably a little bit better than Anselm in knowing the limitations of logic. It need, we need to be very fair to Aquinas. He acknowledges there are some things that cannot be rationally demonstrated, i.e. the Trinity. 
he would not want to say that. Now, I'm going to try to summarize some big ideas here in this introduction before we get to Aquinas himself. So let me take you through some key ideas uh, in scholasticism. Uh, there are three basic periods. This is what I call the intellectual context for understanding Aquinas. This will put him in his context, I think. The first period is the 11th and 12th century. We talk about scholasticism. This is the period of its rise. And the first and foremost representative of the first period of scholasticism is Anselm. He's the guy who is rationally trying to demonstrate. So he is the preeminent example, the first example of this first period. Uh, I think I mentioned to you last time that some will call him the father of medieval scholasticism. I think that title uh, is appropriate to Anselm, the inaugurator or the father of scholasticism. There are two other uh, noteworthy persons, or three actually. Abelard, who died in 1142, and Bernard of Clairvaux, died in 1153. Abelard is, is much more the scholar type. Uh, Bernard is m much more mystical in his orientation. Uh, sometimes people, at least uh, will give you the impression that, that medieval mysticism and scholasticism are somehow opposed. That is, in fact, not the case. Uh, this hard kind of rationalistic thinking could coexist in the same person with a mystical bent. Uh, we find that in Aquinas himself in some parts, and we find it in a great deal in Bernard of Clairvaux, and we find it also in Anselm. Uh, so somehow mysticism, a sort of mysticism, uh, coexists with a very strong rationalistic tendency. Now, Abelard... Abelard is uh, very different from Anselm. If Anselm said, I believe in faith-seeking understanding, Abelard says just the opposite. Nothing is to be believed unless it is first understood. His is understanding looking for faith. Very, very different attitude. And with taking such a strong uh, intellectualist sort of approach, uh, it will surprise none of you that Abelard was the sort of person who got into trouble from time to time. Uh, in fact, uh, toward the end of his life, he was declared a heretic. Now, I mentioned Abelard together with Bernard of Clairvaux because... Abelard's greatest detractor and opponent was the great Bernard of, Clair of Clairvaux. Uh, Bernard took it upon himself to be the chief upholder of orthodoxy. This mystical theologian also is the chief upholder of orthodoxy against Abelard. And let me give you just a, a, a great quote 
Bernard writing about Abelard. This will give you a sense of the intensity of feeling between these two men. Bernard says of Abelard, He is a monk without a rule. He is a man inconsistent with himself. On the inside, a Herod. On the outside, a John. A thorough hypocrite, having nothing of a monk but a name and a habit. When he, that is Abelard, discourses about the Trinity, he savors of Arius. When speaking of grace, he savors of Pelagius. When speaking about the person of Christ, he savors of Nestorius. And while he exhausts himself to make Plato a Christian, he proves himself to be a heathen. If you get the impression that Bernard didn't like Abelard, that's a safe impression. The two men battled. And clearly, Bernard won. In the Synod of Sens, S-E-N-S, In 1141, Bernard as the prosecutor, the Synod gave the result that Abelard was a heretic. Abelard himself protested and said, no, you misunderstand me. I'm perfectly orthodox. But Bernard and the others would have nothing, would not, would not listen. Uh, although he was not... Uh, burned at the stake or anything of that sort, uh, he died a year later in 1142. So, and to get a sense of this first period, one of the major intellectual battles had to do with Abelard and Bernard of Clairvaux. Another person of note in this first period is Peter the Lombard, or Peter Lombard. He was from northern Italy, Peter from Lombardy. Anyway, he was called the Master of the Sentences, or Magister Centarium, Cententarium, or the Master of the Sentences. Peter Lombard had probably the greatest selling, the biggest selling book of the Middle Ages. His book was a bestseller for centuries because his book The Sentences was used as a textbook in every single theology class throughout the Middle Ages. In fact, virtually every theologian of consequence, it was, it was a rite of passage to write a commentary on Lombard's Sentences. Uh, the title of his book is Sententiate Patrum, or The Sentences of the Father. Don't, you have to look the Latin. The Sentences of the Father. It's funny, when you're going back and you read uh, some of the 16th century theologians, as I have done, they will simply say, the Master says. And that always means Lombard, Peter Lombard. Uh, he is just known as the master. What he did in his sentences uh, is that 
these are simply a collection of quotations from the church fathers. That's all the sentences are. It's not a, the creativity was mostly in the arrangement, not in the content, because he didn't really write the sentences. He basically arranged quotations from the church fathers under an orderly head. The first book deals with God, particularly the, the, the question of the existence of God. So he compiles a bunch of citations from the church fathers on that subject. Secondly, he will talk about man, the nature of man and angels in book two. Then compile a whole bunch of quotations from church fathers on that subject. Book three is Christology. And book four, the sacraments. Got that? God, book one. He deals with the existence of God. Book two, he deals with man and angels. Book three, he deals with Christ. And book four, the sacraments. Well, you know, theology has a certain continuity. This is, this is, in effect, one of the early systematic theologies. Although it's not his, you know, devising his own thoughts. It's compiling what the greats have said. Uh, in particular, he, he cites Augustine. Uh, Brian? I don't know, to tell you the truth. Does, does anybody know? Did anybody do a paper on origin? Does he follow the same basic pattern? Or I don't know. I mean, there, there's a certain logic to it. I mean, you have to talk about God, and you have to talk about man, and you have to talk about Christ. So you may not get the order the same, but but Origen, I think, certainly did talk about each of those three these subjects. Well, he his he one of the things that, that's characteristic of Peter Lombard is that he does give preferential treatment to Augustine. Uh, Lombard was one of the primary, this, his book on the sentences, was one of the primary avenues for people's understanding of Augustine's teaching in the Middle Ages. Now, some of the problems with that are that uh, Peter Lombard thinks that some writings that are, that are Augustine's are really not Augustine's. So there's some pseudo-Augustinian citations in the sentences. So, and the picture he gives is of a, a less than, than Augustinian Augustine. It's sort of a, a, a semi-Augustinianism that comes through. But it's that, that's the flavor, and that's the way most students were introduced to Augustine, is through the sentences. And every theological student, uh, you were required to sit on a class where a young professor would uh, comment on the sentences. And then once you got to a higher stage in your education, then you would become a lecturer on the, on the sentences. And when you got to become a, a, a professor, then you would lecture on them again and write a book, your comments. So this is, this is really one of the crucial books of the Middle Ages, without question. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U.
at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.